0: Hello, and welcome to the fifth edition of the Future Farm podcast. Since our first recording in October 21, each discussion we hosted has covered food price inflation. Back then, though, the public's focus was on home eating cost. The spike in agricultural input prices, which was causing farmers problems already, was not immediate enough to make the headlines. The war in Ukraine has clearly changed this. A breadbasket nation has been yanked from the global supply chain, and the problem of food security and food price inflation is now acute all over the world. This discussion is of course going on in Britain as well. So today we'll first talk about what has changed in the commodities market. Then we'll turn to a discussion on food security and what it means for Britain, where some of the sectors in agriculture had already been facing severe cost pressure way before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So strap yourself in. I promise you this will be an interesting 45 minutes. To introduce Clive Bailey. Clive you're a farmer in Staffordshire, why don't you tell us what you grow
1: and how you do it? Okay yeah so we're a combinable crops farm, We um, are a reasonable scale. Uh, crops we grow here, wheat for both feed and milling markets, um, oilseed rape, barley for animal feed primarily, uh, grain rye, uh, beans, linseed and a few other bits and pieces from time to time but that, that's the core of what we're growing here, all combinable stuff.
0: So tell me, you said wheat right at the outset. Uh, so you, you grow both millable and uh, an animal feed grade uh, wheat. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, um, historically we have. Current circumstances, again, possibly influencing that decision at the moment, because obviously the milling wheat has a much higher nitrogen requirement, so the capital involved in, in getting it to milling and the gamble of aiming for that higher quality wheat is something we're questioning right now in light of the you know, very high nitrogen prices at the moment. So yeah, maybe next year may look a lot more towards the feed wheat side of things. That's the kind of decision we're having to make with this kind of changing goalposts, ever moving scenery of, uh, over the last few months.
0: So the key word being price, wheat prices, can you tell us what has happened to the wheat price in particular since the outbreak of war in Ukraine.
1: Yeah, well, it was happening before the war, to be honest. I mean, you know, the, the, the volatility in, in grain markets in this last kind of 12 month period have been huge. Uh, if you were selling uh, wheat, feed wheat, for instance, pre harvest, you'd have been in that 150, 160 pound a ton kind of range. It would it, it climb steadily post harvest uh, with various kind of you know global news of drought and, and weather events around the world and lower stock figures. So it was climbing fairly steadily uh, around the 200 pound a ton mark but then obviously the the kind of outbreak of the, the war in uh, in the ukraine has really spiked that with them being such a critical part of supply chain not just the ukraine that whole black sea region uh is an area with some of the most important ports in the world so you know shipping wheat around the world so it's really impacted the market today's prices were 300 315 pounds a ton for feed wheat so we're talking a variability within the last six six or eight months of, of pretty much a hundred percent difference and And that impacts on the profitability of my business massively. Uh, You know, how well I farm, what my yields are, how efficiently we're farming has almost become secondary to to how good a trader I am. Um, Buying my nitrogen, key inputs like nitrogen fertilizer at the right time and selling my wheat at the right time can make huge swings in difference to the profitability of the farm to the point where you you start to wonder, am I making a living out of actually farming and growing crops now or am I just a trader really in, in this market?
0: I think you're both. Uh, Tell me, um, when you um, say uh, milling wheat, uh, sorry, uh, growing feed wheat is 300 to 350, how much is milling wheat right now?
1: So the milling wheat premiums are normally in that kind of 20 to 30 pounds a tonne premium. And the reason I suggest I'm questioning it is the extra nitrogen required to get the protein contents, uh, the content and specification for a milling wheat. It, at the moment, the high nitrogen prices, you know, nearly £1,000 a tonne nitrogen prices that are being talked about right now, they wouldn't cover the additional nitrogen needed. So the the financial case for growing milling wheat um, this season or, 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 or next season even um, are, are pretty weak right now. The, the, you'd be better the better business decision would just be to grow a large heap of feed wheat at lower cost.
0: That's interesting. So you still think that the business case for growing the wheat that humans need uh, to to make bread with and eat, that the business case for that is still not quite there. At the same time, we hear this word food security and reducing our dependence on imports at the same time, but we'll we'll get back to that, presumably at the end in, in a sort of group discussion. There's a final question before I, I, I move on to our next um, participant here. Say you were called upon to grow more wheat uh, this season. How easy is that for you to do? How elastic are you in terms of how much wheat you can produce?
1: Well, we already are trying to maximize our output. So, you know, um, I can't really grow more wheat. Uh, I can change rotation slightly. Um, but obviously then you lose other crops like the beans and the proteins from them I mean remember as well Florian that you you say that impact on on the milling wheat is a food chain but when we're growing animal feeds, the, the feed wheat is being fed to chickens, cattle and livestock, which is then obviously ultimately all ending up. Well, predominantly, there is some, uh, there's this pull from you know, wheat being used for um, from ethanol production, for instance, which may buffer the, the the oil and gas prices. There may be more demand from those sectors, which is holding prices up. But predominantly, it does all end up you know, on, on a supermarket shelf in one shape or form, even if it's not as a loaf of bread. Um, but we haven't really got the ability, you know, we're already, although we run a, a low input kind of system, which... To some extent, you know, the, the timing of that is great for us. We've been running like a kind of a no-tillage um, regenerative conservation ag system, which uses a lot less cultivation, which uses a lot less fuel. Because obviously, the two key input prices that are really impacting me at the moment, and will do over the ne- over the next year or two, I'm sure, is the nitrogen price and the and the, and the fuel price. Uh, they're my two major input classes. So being really connected to how those prices are movement moving you know so information is important i sit here with like you know a second screen set up which has got kind of price information on it like a, like some kind of city trader all the time rather than a farmer these days because that the movements in those prices really matter i think really there's more potential for farmers to re to produce the same but but uh, but using less input so I, I you know i've learned that you can get the same kind of yields whilst using less nitrogen fertiliser and whilst using significantly less fuel. That's within the power of most farmers to be able to do and achieve quite quickly. And I think the urgency and the push towards doing that has never been greater. It's been easy in the past to not need to bother because, well, fuel's cheap enough, synthetic fertilizer cheap enough, why why change what's not broke kind of thing. But now all of a sudden, I think there's going to be huge um, incentive to really reduce your the amount of cultivation you're doing, if any at all, and to try and find ways of reducing your, your synthetic nitrogen use, whilst maintaining output. But there's not a lot we can do to improve output. It's uh, I'd say most farmers are already trying to do that anyway, and have been. That's just been sound business since you know, forever really.
0: So we've got a limited amount of land. We we can't grow, you know, endless amounts of wheat. Now with the wheat prices being where they are, uh, you said three hundred to three hundred fifteen pounds per tonne. Uh, I think it's a good time to hand over to Rob Dakin at this point, who owns Rob Dakin Partnership. But before I ask you about the impact of feed prices on your sector, uh, could you tell us a, a bit about what you do uh, in, in, in your business life?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I guess Dakin Partnership was is probably born out of 30, probably too many years to remember, 35 years plus involvement in agriculture. And right across agriculture from managing large arable farms and and large farms and estates in the Midlands to, you know, some quite senior roles in feed companies. So we provide, you know, both a range of consultancy and supply options and we work on a multi-partner basis. So we work with livestock farmers. We work with other consultancy businesses who require specific knowledge or data that, that we may carry. But we also work with manufacturers and traders as far afield as Colombia. We do some work in Hungary, in Denmark, and, and have worked in Europe considerably over the years. And we work both directly and indirectly with probably the UK's largest milk buyers. Um, so, the, you know, the core of the business is, you know, is very much centred around, you know, the, the livestock feeds. My skill set probably lies within organic milk. I also write for the feed compounder and for organic farmers and growers in their newsletters. But the multi-partner approach gives us access to specialists across the whole supply chain and the whole livestock production industry. So in, in brief, that's that's what we do, I guess. Well qualified to to help me with this next question. So I got a quote here
0: from um, the head of the National Pig Association, the NPA, from a press release that I picked up on the 10th of March. So today is the 16th of March, so a little less than a week ago. The bit that stood out to me was, we are staring down the barrel of a total collapse of the British pig industry, and that kind of made me scratch my head because last time I went into the supermarket, bacon was on the shelves and uh, you certainly as a consumer don't feel obvious strain that uh, is embedded in that quote. So um, I'm half guessing here that this must be a lot to do with grain prices that we've just spoken about. Uh, So could you uh, perhaps add some, shed some light here as to what this might be about?
2: Yeah, uh, again, you know, and I want, you know, I was listening quite intently to what Clive was saying there. And there was a, you know, I want to pick up on it. A couple of points which I think are relevant to livestock, which Clive made. You know, the, the difficulty with livestock is we both we neither a price take we're a price taker rather than a price maker. So Clive there spoke about being a becoming you know a trader as well as a farmer, so he can operate in a market what's moving. Whereas most livestock products, particularly dairy would be based on a fixed price, on a contract price with a with a dairy company. So that the the dairy industry doesn't have that luxury of markets moving at one end of their scale. But they have they they have the disadvantage of of Clive's market moving, wheat going up 80 pounds a ton, you know, is whether you're a dairy farmer, whether you're a pig farmer, whether you're a poultry farmer, is incredibly hard to swallow. So to right across the industry, I think we're 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 suffering at high costs, and a lot of it stems from further back probably than than the Ukraine. If you look at you know input costs through twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one, we're on the constant rise. So soya, maize, cereals, rape, you know everything was was pushing forward, and those additional costs. You know again picking up on what what Clive said with. What I would probably where, where you talked about nitrogen and the milling wheat, I would look at those as, as marginal liters. Can I, you know, does the feed price milk price ratio allow me to feed extra feed to take those extra liters? And at, at this point, that system's broken. That's why we're seeing a decrease in in milk yields. UK is dropping between two and a half and three percent per month in terms of milk yield. Ireland probably about two percent and that's driven by by farmers pulling back on on the amount of feed with the milk price feed price ratio. but again, following up with with Clive's comments about about feed wheat and I absolutely a hundred percent agree whether it's milling wheat for bread or whether it's feed feed wheat for livestock, it's still producing it's still producing food for the food chain which ends up in the supermarket so, whether that be milk, cheese, yoghurt, pork, or poultry?
0: Supermarkets. So that's the word I was hoping you would say. Clive has the ability, you know, he's a trader right now, more than a farmer. And that is good and bad, right? And when the market is down, certainly you probably feel hostage to world prices. Um, going back to livestock, supermarkets seem to be almost the key here in that it seems to be impossible for livestock farmer to say, well, my as you said, my, my, my ton of grain now costs 80 pounds more. Uh, I'm just going to pass that on. So is that sort of like, why is that? Why is it that as a pig farmer who pays X to raise a pig or a cow or any other animal or would cost X to, to make a liter of milk, why is it so hard to pass these price increases on to the supermarkets and essentially to the consumer? We are supposed to be in a market economy. Why is it so hard in these sectors?
2: I think the fundamental difference between the two systems is, Clive's got a product which he can put in a shed and he can buy or sell whenever he wants. Whereas if you're producing meat or you're producing milk, if and if we again, if we look at milk, you milk cows twice a day. That milk, that milk's got to leave the farm. You know, it has to leave the farm every day. There's no storage capacity. We can't. We can't pop it in the shed and think, actually, the milk price looks great for August. Let's sell our milk in August. Whereas in Clive's situation, he can look at his screens, as he talks about, and he can say, yeah, I can see wheat's a really good sell for November. I'm going to carry my wheat to November, and I'll sell November. Whereas as a, a livestock farmer, in most situations, you haven't got that luxury, whether it's poultry, whether it's eggs, whether it's pork. You know, you have one, once those animals are ready to go and into the food chain, they've got to go. Or they go over spec or they get too heavy, um, you know, and they're and they downgraded and, and the price drops with them. The pig industry wouldn't be my real strong area, but I did chat to a couple of people prior to this this morning. And, you know, they're sort of saying they're planning for, for the pig industry in the UK to probably be the national herd to be 25% smaller. So... I asked them what what that meant, and the numbers that they gave me that you know that we'll see the sound numbers drop from 440,000 to possibly 380,000, even as low as 360,000. So will that impact then be passed back? You know, not in the short term, but in the long term, that will then implicate Clive's business by reducing the need for or the yeah.
0: for for feed. I get it. Um, so just taking stock f- for a minute, we started out by saying that th- there's a national debate now on food security and our dependency on imports. But there are events that predate this war, which seem to suggest that this year, and you know, compounded by the war, agriculture, at least in some sectors, is contracting. And when it comes to Clive's business, there is some lee-room to shift, things, to shift the furniture around, but you can't suddenly double your wheat output unless it's at the expense of something else. So back to the discussion. I'd like to introduce Mike Soulsby. Mike, um, you own a, a food trading company called GB Seasons. Can you, uh, first of all, tell us a bit about that and what you specialize in?
3: Yeah, sure. Thanks, Florian. So um, uh, GB Seasons is a, is, um, a UK company that specialises in the export of um, British fresh produce. So I, I've worked in sort of international fresh produce um, trading for um, almost sort of 15, 15 years or so now. Um, I spent a lot of time in, in South America trading produce into Asia and sort of been back in this country a few years. And, and as I say, GB Seasons is kind of looking at the opportunities here for for export of of fresh fruits and fruits and vegetables that we grow, which is a, a kind of a, a fairly niche area in the sense that, you know, historically we've not really looked too much overseas for opportunities for for the produce produce that we grow in this country, given the obviously the strong domestic demand that we have. So it it's focused on certain certain product lines um where there are kind of niche demands at the moment one of which is strawberries into uh, markets like japan and then sort of over the winter months we do some some potato export as well so uh, yeah that's that's where my focus is
0: i guess the first question is and i uh... I know that your specialty is an export, so we're just going to have to test your knowledge here on 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 the domestic market as well. The first question is, obviously, people are talking about food and food price inflation. Are consumers yet, from what you can see from the world prices that you're being quoted, where are we heading in terms of food price inflation? Have we seen the tip yet, or is the worst yet to come?
3: I think it's a really interesting question. I think the from where i see it that there's there's always going to be a lag between you know pressures on input prices and the sort of the, the the chaos that you know events like the recent war causing in the markets and that filtering through to kind of prices um at the retail level especially in this country where where we as we all know we have a we have a sort of a retail landscape that is extremely powerful um and has wield significant sort of purchasing power over over the supply chain. so retailers have to start listening to the demands of, of traders and growers in this country and, and, and lifting those price points. I think in fresh produce, which is which is the area that I specialise in, you know, you've got certain lines um, out there. For example, some several major retailers um, take a 500 gram pallet of grapes. It's a two pound price point. You know, it's almost like that. That's the magic number. Um, that they feel they can't go above, or, or they'll they'll lose they'll lose volume on that line. That two pound price point has to increase. You know you've got to break through those tre- those thresholds because you've got pressures in terms of inputs right throughout the supply chain. That's not just at the grower level. That's also in the bits in the middle. It's it's international shipping and it's transport. It's all the other all, all it's packaging. It's all the other inputs beyond actually just the, the farm and, and, and cultivation of these crops that is pushing that, that necessity for, for, for a higher uh, consumer price point. And um, uh, yeah, I think the, the Ukraine war will have an interesting effect because there is, a, there is in fresh produce a little bit of a, a, a double edge to this in that you've got two fairly important, particularly Russia, but U- Ukraine as well, uh, markets in Europe that are effectively from from one week to the next closed for imports global imports so you know you've got fresh produce that's on the water you've got fresh produce that that will be harvested over the next next few months that would be destined normally the normal year to those markets that has to go somewhere else so on some product lines you're going to see actually a downward pressure on, on prices in the, in the spot market because you've got more volume hitting other, other major European markets. So, for example, South Africa are just about kick off their um, citrus season. Uh, they'd normally expect to send 10, 20 percent of their total crop to to Russia. That will end up in Europe. Um, that will end up in, in Germany, France, UK. So uh, you, you've, you're going to have traders out there what are we expecting some Um, some good deals on some product lines like that at the same time you've got to have growers pushing back and saying look my costs are higher so where it's all going to quite end up we'll have to uh, wait and see.
0: I was listening to the Today program on BBC Radio 4 last week on the 11th the NFU president Minette Batters was on the topic of the conversation was similarly around um, food price inflation and she said, we are already seeing massive contractions in the protected crop sector, like aubergines and peppers. So everything that's grown in a glass house, uh, because 50% of their cost is reliant on the price of gas. So going back to the original argument, this all started way before that war. I guess the question uh, that, that is within that, if we wanted to eat aubergines um, in, well, if, if the market's the market and, you know, there's less aubergine being grown because it's too expensive in the UK, in order to eat our aubergines, we need to import them, which is kind of at odds with the idea of self-sufficiency. Is that a correct interpretation of, of this quote and what might happen?
3: Yeah, I, I think it's it. there are a lot of contradictions in this and kind of competing forces. So you, you've got, as you say, glasshouse production in this country on products like that, on on, on tomatoes, on strawberries as well. Where um, the, the the cost of gas is, is has a huge impact, and therefore you're going to get to a point where yeah, it will be cheaper to either import or just do without and go to substitute products. It's a very interesting one because the the government, um, you know, in my sector on export, you know, we come back to the issue around food security in this country. To have genuine food security, you need an export lines. Uh, I I believe because you, you've got to have that outlet for you know percentages of crops that don't hit. The specs for, for the for the domestic market, you want to have that diversity in, in sales that an export, a portion of export gives you. Big growing nations like the USA, Australia, New Zealand, they all have a percentage of, of, of main fresh fresh produce lines that go for export. You have American strawberries go a lot you know end up in in, in Asia, uh, New Zealand apples and so forth. So, and you've got this drive on the on the part of the government to to promote exports post-Brexit. There's a big wide world out there let's get our produce out there. Um, But at the same time, you've got all of these supply side pressures that in instances like gas prices, I think the government probably is limited in what they can actually do to to intervene. There are other significant costs to growers such as picking costs and labour where they can intervene, probably and and make more of a difference around seasonal worker schemes and so forth. So um, it's a question of how far do we want to go with food security how serious are we are we about that how how much do we want to respect the free the free market and global tr- um price trends for things like fertilizers other inputs like like the gas price and you know quite where where the balance is really and and as you say do we leave it more to the to the open markets whereby we're probably going to end up importing more of our fresh produce um versus where we were a few years ago uh, i'd like to
0: kind of draw this all together now. Again, I was listening to the BBC Radio Forest Today program. So now you know what I do in the morning. Uh, This was just this week. uh, And I was listening to Ronald Kers, who is the CEO of the Two Sisters Food Group, who who, uh, produce a lot of food for the supermarkets under their own brand. And he said in in the conversation, we need to become self-sufficient and less dependent on imports. Now that is kind of at the outset, what we said to discuss here, but from everything I've, I've heard, there seems to be that the main paradox within all of this is that it sounds like we can achieve a higher degree of self-sufficiency. I don't think any country is self-sufficient. I mean, we'd still, you know, we can't grow asparagus in February. Um, but in order to do that, we have to accept huge price increases. We have to remove the choke point that currently we seem to have identified sitting at the retail end that says, no, we have to have something priced at this particular price point otherwise it's not viable for us is that correct and I'll, let's start with rob here is food security something that can be achieved but at a at a high cost that the
2: government is not really willing to to entertain it's really complex and, and i think to go down that um food security route you'd almost need a fundamental reboot of of the nation's tastes i think we're accustomed to to different products that. 12 months of the year you mentioned asparagus you can talk about avocados you can talk about raspberries strawberries uh, across the board so you need a, you need to change the complete habit of a nation of shoppers as well as you know just looking for food security I think the other thing which is the big point that we've got to sort of throw into this is if you look at the world population today is about 9.7 billion by 2050 we'll be touching close to 10 billion people so where does that where does that fit into the question of food security you know how are we going are we going to be able to feed that number of people with the systems that that we've got you know we we've been papering over the cracks for for a long time and i think what the ukraine's done it's it's really opened the cracks up of, of how fickle and how you know, dangerous that the, the food supply chain is and can be. And
0: Clive, what about you? Um, you're a regenerative farmer. Taking care of the land is probably as much your your objective as is growing good quality food. How viable is a, is a strategy or a, a, the aim of achieving food security for you? And I'm, I'm asking that from the point of view of, in a previous podcast, another arable farmer said essentially the UK arable sector is not investable. You can invest in the in, in carbon farming, but you you know we're simply not competitive enough uh, to to just invest. The returns aren't high enough uh, if you if you just were looking at producing food. Uh, so, what do you think would need to change at your end in order to uh, get to more food security? Or is it just a pipe dream?
1: It's really complicated, as Rob said, but I think if we're looking for any positives out of what is obviously a very terrible situation in the Ukraine, I think actually what may come out of this is it's brought this whole issue of food security, you know, to the top of the agenda a little bit, because it's been, it's, not been, it's not really been considered by successive governments for long enough fundamentally food's too cheap um, but that's an easy thing to say from a comfortable middle-class background where I can afford to eat and aren't having to use food banks because a lot of people in even in the UK in in food poverty so that needs it's easy to say that food's too cheap it needs to be more expensive but that means a lot more people go without so it's selfish attitude to take true self-sufficiency i think is a bit of a pipe dream you know we live in a society where we expect to be able to eat you know not just seasonally um so a degree of imports will always be an important part of uh, of our diet for with my regenerative hat on i think over the last couple of decades people have taken food too much for granted they're, they're not really considering the quality of their food you know, how nutritious it is how it's being produced what its impact on the environment is and all those things were were We're creeping into the agenda. I think people are becoming more aware of these, but it's very complicated government policy. Henry Dimbleby's National Food Strategy, recently published and is well worth a read. It's a very interesting document, really does highlight how what we're eating and how we're producing and getting that food impacts every aspect of government spending and, and our society through education um, to, to to welfare um, to, to obviously to, to you know the kind of the budget that goes into the NHS mopping up some of the problems caused by eating the wrong food or too much of the wrong food or whatever so it's a really complicated area but Henry's report is the first thing I've seen actually does try to pull these things together and look at them in a joined dot method rather than all individually, because it's all part of the same problem. And I think it's something we really are going to have to solve going forward, because as you quite rightly pointed out there, Florian, food production has been marginal at, at, at best in the UK for too long now. And it's something that we all need. Um, you know, everyone panicked when they couldn't buy toilet roll or or fuel was short at the fuel pumps. Well, you know, I, I dread to think the panic that would be in society if suddenly the supermarket shelves weren't full. And genuinely, I mean, short term, that's my concern right now. The business case at the moment, in just a couple of numbers I did before today, the, the 300 pounds a tonne wheat that I'm selling right now, um, the nitrogen fertiliser, which is the kind of biggest single input that kind of impacts though my output there. And um, the value of that nitrogen fertiliser per tonne was was less than a third of that of the tonne of wheat that I'm selling. Today, I'd need to sell four tons of wheat at a November price of 250 pounds a ton to buy one ton of nitrogen fertilizer. So there's two things happen to my business right there and decisions I've got, you know, er- you know, relatively soon decisions I've got to make. The first thing is for me to farm the same acreage of wheat and try and maintain my output like next year, which morally is the right thing to do. You know, if, if if everyone decides to stop farming, there's going to be a lot of hungry people in the world and that's going to be a big humanitarian disaster. But the first problem I've got is I need a lot more capital to farm you know, to, to, to produce that same output. Now, not not all farmers will have, you know, access to the capital they're required to do that. The other thing that's it's done to my business is it's it's increased the risk, you know, the, the cost of sitting in this casino now, the gambling on growing a crop and hoping that the weather's right and I managed to harvest it and everything's good. Well, you know, if that goes wrong, I'm, I'm in a much bigger hole than I used to be because I've put a lot more out to get there. So I'm being asked to take a lot more risk to produce the same. And all this is against the background where my margins are actually reducing despite those higher prices. With my business head on, you can start to make a damn good case for following the farm and not cropping at all and saying, well, you know, we've got a couple of good years. Let's sit back, wait for the world to sort itself out, wait for gas and oil supplies and things to kind of sort out. But... But that's going to mean if a lot of farmers start doing that, there's going to be a lot of hungry people out there um, because it impacts through that chain. So I think this is the problem that the government need to address fairly. Yeah, really. I'm amazed it's not bigger in the news right now. These decisions are going to be made in the next three or four months and they're going to impact the next 18 months of global global food supply. Um, So, yeah, it's... it's, it's a dangerous situation right now. And and actually, maybe this is part of Putin's strategy almost. It's kind of like, is, is do you win wars economically these days rather than with missiles? And, you know, as he thought this through and realised that 18 months down the line, there's going to be a lot of you know unrest in the world when people can't get the food that they want. Mike, do you
0: have any particular view on... What perhaps I guess we focus more now on what the government could do if self-sufficiency was something it wanted to write as its a core policy goal, where should it focus its energy in, in, in order to get us a little bit closer, we've seen. We've heard now more or two participants who actually grow food. The same; it's it's not so easy. Uh, so, what should happen?
3: It's a really complicated question, and I think I don't name the government, as 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 was pointed out just there. You know that there's so many conflicting interests and issues there for. To, to contemplate and, and you know not just at a business um uh, agricultural level but also social issues around uh as was commented on you know uh, the price points and lower lower level income um consumers who who will then be priced out of healthier fresh local produce potentially um and they're all you know very important factors to weigh up so i, I think what, the one way i try and sort of um rationalize things uh, it's just by taking a step back and looking at what w- what are the win-wins for everyone here and and one of those for example is on soft fruit which you know is is an industry in this country that i know a little bit about the average soft fruit farmer strawberry far- uh, grower in this uh, uh in this country about 50 percent of their costs is labor you know picking cost so Setting aside the politics of the seasonal worker scheme, how many sort of migrant labour pickers do you allow in each year, and so forth? There is one obvious alternative to to pickers at a a strawberry farm, and it's robotics. And and you know there are companies out there, and there are it's obviously an industry that is is developing. But the UK has the um, uh, the the expertise. to to develop that industry probably as fast as anywhere else in the world you know so maybe let's let's look at let's look at ways like that let's look at alternatives like that if we can develop robotics in fruit picking faster than anywhere else um, globally um or at least within europe then we're going to get that competitive advantage that will that will help solve food security issues. That will help make exports more viable. That will bring that price point down in in the shops. You know, there's a win. That seems to be it's those kind of things that are win wins for everyone. It's not easy. It takes time. But let's throw a bit more resources at things like that.
0: Investing, up armoring our technology. I think for the next podcast, I need to get Mr. Dyson on because that's <laughs> that's kind of like his spiel, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, Dyson farming. Um, that makes sense. And I think that is probably something where a government could make a big difference by creating incentives for um, for investment in, in farm technology in this country. I think that um, has been done in other sectors. Why not agriculture? Well, that's um, a great conclusion to this particular part, but I don't think I'd be doing Mother Earth a favor if I didn't you know, come back to the thing that we come back on every podcast, which is you know, we talk about agri- uh, agriculture in purely economic terms, but, um, you know, there is a soil, wind, water, nature involved uh, in it as well. In previous podcasts, we've, we seem to have, you know, the consensus seemed to have been that this country is moving towards a more environmentally sustainable way of growing food. Carbon farming was mentioned earlier in on, on this conversation. Uh, now, I'm not going to go into much detail. Uh, there are other podcasts. If you want to know what that is, then go back to those. But What I'm wondering is, um, let's say the government is not as enlightened as we are around this table and uh, decides that, no, we're just going to, you know, throw all of our um, environmental incentives out uh, and we're going back to intensive cultivation, intensive farming. Uh, I'd like to take your view around that, perhaps starting with Rob, what do you see in the market? Uh, Are businesses kind of like gearing up to going back to growing the way they used to?
2: From a background from a bigger business position, and, and what's happening in the world and in the Ukraine and with supplies is, is horrendous. But I still think we have to keep our keep our eye on the bigger prize. And and I think the bigger bigger prize still is climate change. So we've still got to be working towards those those numbers and figures and reductions that that were set out in the COP conference and and what we've been looking at, because I think that will be the biggest challenge to feed in the 9 billion, 10 billion people we talked about earlier. We we still have to continue on down that road and and look at this as as a hiccup along the way, but not take our eyes off of where where we're really going. And I, I picked up on something in one of Clive's, Tweets where he, you, I think you put a figure, Clive, for how much fuel you used, um, stubble to stubble. You know, which was it 32 litres?
1: Yeah, so yeah, I mean, this is where you know, I, there's what makes sense to the environment for me, as always being driven by what makes sense for my business. You know, I'm not some kind of eco-warrior who set out to, to, to save the planet. Primarily, I'm running the business and I'm trying to do what's most profitable. It just so happens that what i found is working more with nature, um, you know, and, and things that are environmentally sound actually seem to yield me better better margins and better profits. So fuel's a fantastic example, really. Um, we use, you know, we use four litres a hectare to establish a crop. And when we were, that, that's sort of a no-tillage type system. Um, we're, you know small much smaller horsepower tractors moving a lot less soil when we were cultivating using heavy cultivation which is much more typical of how most farmers are growing cereals in the uk we were using thirty two liters per hectare on establishment that's as much as we now use stubble to stubble you know including all our application co- um, passes and harvest and and dry yeah, everything basically so huge savings now when fuels like you know when it was fifty per liter for fuel or whatever or those you know, people don't really you know, place a massive amount on that because it's fuels cheap enough. When you start talking about £1.20, £1.50, pound fifty, or where's it going? You know, red diesel prices. Where are they going? All of a sudden, those savings are huge. Something like a, um, um, you know, a large high horsepower you know, quad truck or challenge caterpillar challenger type tractor. You're looking at 150 pounds an hour in fuel alone to run one of those now. That that conversation mentioned on Twitter. There was a farmer who was saying that his his quad truck was he was drinking 300 <laughs> liters of fuel a day. And I did the calculation that, well, I, I can actually drill over a thousand, I can establish a thousand, over a thousand acres of wheat for what, for that fuel you use in just one day with that big high horsepower tractor. So
2: and I think in the past we've all been guilty of it as well, haven't we? We've all, we've all cut wheat at 20, 21% and, and whacked it through the dryer because diesel's 40, 50, 55 pence a litre, you know. And I, I think what this will now do is it'll, the positives that will come out it'll challenge people to think outside the box and that'll be across the board whether it's livestock or whether it's an arable farmer everybody will have to think think differently
1: exactly and i mean also the carbon opportunities you know i mean, your carbon selling iso certified carbon is has become another output for me um so to turn my back on that and to suddenly say well I, 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 that doesn't matter anymore i don't need to sell it um, it would be would be foolish, really. It's it's another kind of product that we've kind of been able to develop and and has a real value to us now as part of the system. So, I I don't really think that you know it's wise to say you know or to or, or to automatically think that well yeah prices are higher so we just need to absolute maximum production. I mean my farming system isn't about lower output anyway. I'm I'm I am aiming to to produce as much as I can. Any you know but I'm just aiming to do it. Spending as little along the way as, as I can to, to produce those better margins. So yeah, it's that whole thing. You know, what makes sense business wise does make sense in the environment, and and the two do work together.
2: The way you you've spoke about carbon there, can that work in a livestock system the same as what it works in an arable system?
1: <laughs> it's it, it's the whole carbon thing, which I'm you know by no means claim to be any kind of expert on. There's big opportunities I think in the livestock sector coming. It's much more complicated is the long and short of it yeah. in livestock systems, but it is, is possible, uh, you know, to so historically over the last, the last, the narrative really has been, you know, cows are bad, crops are good kind of thing. And actually that's just a really dumbing down of a far more complex discussion yeah. argument. And I think, you know, grasslands, that can't be used anything else is probably, you know, some of the best carbon sequestrating stores that we've got. So yeah, it, it, I think the livestock market for carbon will come. It's just all the the commerciality, the commercial side of that market has has done a logical thing and tackled the easiest markets first, which is arable.
0: So it sounds like you guys are not seeing a return to intensive agriculture in the next few years as a result to that. I mean, we have established pretty firmly that there are some other fundamental problems to be resolved in UK agriculture first. One of the
1: issues you've got, Florian, right now is obviously government policy um, has been, you know, and has been gearing towards taking some land out of production, you know, rewilding land and that kind of thing. Well, again, with what's going on, if there's a humanitarian food crisis globally, rewilding land, which obviously benefits the environment, morally stinks a bit if it's at the cost of people starving. And yeah, some big challenges going forward as to where you draw those lines between protecting human beings and protecting the environment.
2: I think that also applies to the biofuels as well, doesn't it? Yeah, you know, I think that the the maize which goes into biofuel and I was sat in a conference yesterday about palm oil, and 50% of the palm oil that comes into Europe goes into, into ethanol or into fuel production. And will we see the you know, will we see the huge swaths of the country water down to maize for the digesters? Should you know, there's a whole raft of. You've opened a real can of worms, flooring with, <laughs> with, where, with where this can can end up because it, you know again the digesters should we be putting food crops into digesters for energy? Well, I'd like to close off
0: with a view from from Mike really on um, food prices, since he's closest to the consumer. Really, food prices are going to go up. We've just heard that we're gonna stick with our qualitative agricultural approach, but consumers are gonna perhaps grab products that are, well, the least expensive on the shelf. Mm. Uh, so what kind of conflict is that at the end of the day? I just think that in this conversation, we've come up with so many tensions and paradoxes that perhaps um, you know, there aren't really any straightforward answers. But if prices go up on the shelf, um, what's the likely responsible consumer?
3: Yeah, I think you're going to get a shift in consumer preference. So, you know, you're going to get, let's say we're assuming for the sake of this argument, uh, across the board, you will have an increase in, in, in prices or, you know, a whole range of fresh produce and other foodstuffs. Consumers will then start to substitute, you know, and, and a panet of blueberries becomes too expensive for them, so they'll buy apples instead. People still need, still need, still need to eat. It'll be a, a, a mixing and matching of, of what they choose, you know, um, and you might have certain products that will, you know, where demand will drop because they'll just simply be be out of people's that those price points will be too too far beyond their means, and then other products, maybe more staple goods that will perhaps pick up in demand so i think that there'll be a, just a general sort of uh, wash up really of as to how how the average consumer goes into store and, and, and what they're putting in their basket but ultimately yeah across the board you have to you're going to have to expect Change. an increase in prices and that's both on imported produce and also domestically produced because everyone You know, one thing we should remember on this is that we're not alone. Uh, These problems are not isolated to to the UK, particularly around obviously um, sort of input costs, fertilizer costs, uh, fuel prices. You know, the the growers around the world are suffering the same. Growers who who produce and then export to the UK are suffering all these same challenges. Um, So, you know, we're we're kind of in it together and um, uh, it, it, it is really across the board that this is happening.
0: Brilliant. Well, I'd like to thank you all very much. The one thing that I would like to take away as a sort of preliminary conclusion is that perhaps the most exciting thing that could come out of this misery is um, a lot more investment in UK agriculture, from which I think everybody could benefit, from the grower to the consumer, and which seems to be overdue. And yeah, on that note, I'd like to thank you. Rob, Clive, Mike, thanks very much for joining. And um, yeah, hopefully we'll speak to you soon. This was probably the most intense discussion we've had to date. Probably because it was so immediate and yet still so surreal. We are talking about a war in Europe after all. Now clearly UK agriculture in its current state is not designed to cope with a war in Europe. And so this is serious. We need investment, we need leadership, and we need a plan that is both short-term and long-term and which helps the farmer as much as it does the consumer. And at the same time though, I'm quite reassured We built Future Farm because we believed back then that the market was not working well enough for farmers. Farmers need more competition, they need more choice, they need more transparency when it comes to the inputs they buy and the output they sell. On either side of that equation, today we see massive businesses that take the farmer's margin and none of that risk. You've heard it from Clive, and it's as simple as that. Now, our platform is there to make the job of growing food more profitable, and that mission feels more right than ever. This was the Future Farm podcast, Until the next time, I'm Florian.